Alright everybody, welcome on back to episode number three of Baseball History. I'm Patrick Duvald, I'm here with Matthew Carter. Um, today I believe the topic we have for y'all is going to be one that Matthew is really excited about, judging by the fact that he brought three. damn near an encyclopedia with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, today we're going to talk about Connie Mack as the player, the manager, and the owner. owner. The folklore that goes with it, I'm sure will get sprinkled in there a little bit. Um, this is somebody I don't know too much about. I recognize the name. And Matthew, I'm willing to bet, is one of the foremost experts on. So with that, I'll uh, go ahead and turn it over to Matthew, man. Where do you want to start with Connie Mack? All right, so let's start, I guess, at the beginning. He was born Cornelius McGillicuddy on December 22nd, 1862 in East Brookfield, Massachusetts, which is not near the Boston area. It's like farther back, some near Worcester, somewhere around there. And, you know, the family name was McGillicuddy, but, you know, even in Brookfield, they referred to them as just Mac, you know, Connie Mac and his father, Michael Mac. He was one of, he had a bunch of siblings. I'm trying to think how many had. I forget about <laughs> We'll get that part out. Sorry about that. <laughs> but anyway, one of a handful. Yeah. So he spent most of his time in East Brookfield, Massachusetts, growing up, his childhood and growing up. I believe he quit school at age 14 to go work. And then around that same time, he discovered baseball in East Brookfield. And it was just, you know, back, you know, baseball was still kind of in its infancy in the 1870s. It's like around 1877. Um, and from the books that I have with me, I have a three-volume biography on Connie Mack, which was written by Norman Bacht. And it was published, you know, like 20, 2007. The first book was 2007. And... From what the book says, when it talks about baseball in his early days, you know, he showed an early aptitude for the game. He was full of ginger, took the game more seriously than the other boys, and began to take charge on the field. So, you know, and he started as a catcher. Catcher was his position, even in, you know, going on to his professional career. And his abilities as a field general suited him for the catcher's position which also would later evolve to his managerial 100 percent so it showed like early on that he had the leadership abilities for the game of baseball and then he started you know and then in the early days in the minor leagues he started in meriden connecticut in 1884 and then he played in it's just the Meriden Baseball Club. I don't know if they had a nickname at the time. Even the 1880s, the minor teams didn't have nicknames. And then he played for Hartford. Back then, Hartford had a team name, but it wasn't the Dark Blues. It was something else. I have to go look it up. But he played for Hartford. And then eventually, in 1886, he started his Major League Baseball career with the Washington... I guess they were called Nationals. Yeah, they were, Washington, they were Nationals. The Washington Nationals in 1886. Yeah, the first, the first Nationals. You know, 
and Nationals were in the National League. They were a National League team, and he played there as a catcher. And then from then, in 1890, he played with the Buffalo Bisons of the Players League, which tried to, which was a rival league, and it only lasted a year. It was put on by different players, spearheaded by Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer John Montgomery Ward, and they were rebelling against the National League because they wanted, I guess, well, we, could, we can get to another topic later, but the Players League was basically, they, they didn't like the National League or the American American Association at the time, so they wanted to, you know, form this new, form this new league and wanted more freedom as players and contracts and whatnot, but the league didn't last very long. <laughs> it, it lasted one season, and then after that season, Connie Mack moved to the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1891. And he played for them from 1891. And then in 1894, he became the manager of the Pirates. And this started his managerial career. And then two years later, he retired as the manager, correct, in 1896? Either retired or he was fired. There's there's different... Or uh, as a player, at least. He retired as a player in 1896, yeah. But, you know, his... You know, this was his first ever managerial job. So he, there's some growing pains. You know, he they weren't they weren't great. I mean, he took over the Pirates in 1894 near the end of the season. In 23 games that he managed, he went 12, won 12, lost 10, and tied one game. And the Pirates, you know, that whole season finished in seventh in the National League. Next year, 1895, they did some improvement. They went 71 and 61. And they lost, and they tied three games, but they also finished seventh in the National League. But National League had like, I think, twelve teams at the time. You know, there wasn't like, you know, they had twelve teams. They had a lot of teams. And then there was some improvement in 1896, at least standings-wise. He went 63, 66 wins, 63 losses, and two ties, and they finished in sixth place. So there was some improvement, but just wasn't enough. And I believe. Uh, the owner of the Pirates at the time hold on let me find it in my book I saw it somewhere he was a meddling the guy was a meddler and his name was Captain Kirk and this dude just like meddled with the team Captain Kirk Cap no, Captain Kirk yeah is that what you said? no Kirk K-E-R-R K-E-R-R yeah Captain Kirk and this guy was just a meddler of the team. He got into everything. And I think, you know, in 1896, he fired Connie Mack because he just couldn't, you know, he just wasn't performing to his ability, the best of his ability. He didn't feel like Mack was performing to the best of his abilities, even though, you know, he had a winning record from all three of those years. You know, it wasn't terrible, but, you know, Captain Kerr was just like, you got to go. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's get back to him as a player. Yes. Yeah. There's a little, yeah. So he came into the league in 1886 as a player for the Washington Nationals. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything memorable about that that you would like to start with? or Basically... He came into the Nationals. Let's see. 
He wasn't much of a hitter. He was a light hitting hit. He was light hitting catcher with a reputation as a smart player, but didn't do anything particularly well as a player. He was like what a 245 hitter. Yeah, his career. I think he hit 600, 650 hits, 645 hits. Yeah, 659 hits. He batted 245, and he only hit like five home runs and 265 runs batted in. You know, he wasn't that memorable as a player, and if he didn't become a manager, there was no way he was getting in the Hall of Fame when it came later on. You know, but, you know, like I said, going back to those East Brookfield days, that managerial spirit, you know, the, the smartness of playing the game and being the leader on the field, you know, that helped him a long way to eventually transition from being a player to a manager. I feel like that still plays true today with how many catchers and first basemen become managers. Yeah. And then sometimes later general managers, but... Like Joe Girardi for the Phillies was a catcher. Or Mike Matheny. Or Mike Matheny, yeah, you know. And who knows, maybe Yadier Molina would be a catcher one day. I think he'd be a heck of a manager one day. Yeah, I I meant to say manager. I apologize for that. But, you know... Or like Pudge Rodriguez, if he wanted to be a manager, he probably could do it, you know. But, like I said, he wasn't a great hitter, but he knew what he was doing on the field as a catcher. Like, just great relationship abilities. So something that stood out about me about reading up on Connie Mack the last few days, but he was one of the first ones to actually, like, squat down behind the dish and, like, get in there. Yeah. Which, I guess, it kind of has evolved into what catching is now. Yeah, and Connie Mack was a tall guy. He was like six foot two, you know, so he had to bend down. And his nickname was Slats uh, for his height and his thin build because he was a tall, skinny guy. And he stayed that way throughout his life. I can relate to that. Yeah, I mean, he's um, like, I mean, Patrick, you know, Patrick's a tall, skinny guy. Connie Mack was a tall, skinny guy. You know? Yeah, any of y'all that are listening that know us, me and Connie Mack, man. <laughs> um. <laughs> And they said, everything else I read too, him as a player, mm-hmm. he was very ruthless with his trash talk. Yes. Um, he, there was a guy, Wilbert Robertson. <clears throat> yep, Wilbert Robertson. Wilbert Robertson. He was never mean, but if he had any soft spot, Connie would find it. He could do and say things that got more under your skin than cuss words used by the other catchers. He'd get to your head. So he, he, he knew how to find your weaknesses and exploit you on them which I'm down with that because that, that, that's a big part of the game of baseball that like when we're watching a game on TV you're not going to hear them mic'd up and hear the little small jabs they're giving at each other mm-hmm. same thing with pro football right. if I, I'd pay money to hear just them mic'd up instead of the commentators yeah so, for sure to have that gift uh, for lack of a better term shit be able to be a good shit talker yeah I mean it's just you know, he had a bat. I mean, he had that in spades. He could get into your head. You didn't think he could, but he would find any way to get an advantage over the over the opponent. You know, that's what it takes to be a competitor. Right. You have to find advantage, whether it be trash talking or, you know, using sticky substances. <laughs> but that's another story. But we've already talked about that last week or last time. I'm sure it won't be the last time I talk about it. No. But anyway, so, like we said, Mac was not a memorable player, like hitter-wise, but 
you know, being a catcher, knowing what he was doing on the field, the, the not street smarts, but the, the game smarts, you know, that helped him. Oh, here's one. Uh, he became, here's a, here's another way, another advantage that Mac had as a, as a player, as a catcher. He became, he developed a skill, he developed skills such as blocking the plate to prevent base runners from scoring and faking the sound of a foul tip. And he 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 faked it like he was. Besides, you know, tipping bats to fake the sound of the foul tip, he became adept at tipping the bats to throw off the hitter's swing. And what you mean by tipping is it's a bat tipping a bat is to brush it with the catcher's bat as the batter swings it, either to delay the swing or putting it off course so that the batter misses the ball or doesn't hit it solidly. If the umpire was aware that the bat has been tipped, whether intentionally or unintentionally, he calls catcher's interference. And Mac never denied this. Like, he, you know, he did I'm that. literally looking at a quote right now about a guy, uh, Farmer Weaver, who was a catcher slash outfielder for Louisville. Mm-hmm. And this is Connie Mack talking about it. He goes, oh, I tipped his bat several times when he had two strikes on him one year. And each time the umpire called him out. <laughs> he got even, though. One time there were two strikes on him, and he swung at the pitch as it was coming in. But he didn't swing at the ball. He swung straight at my wrists. Sometimes I think I can still feel the pain. I'll tell you, I didn't tip his bat again. No, sir. <laughs> Not until the last game of the season. And Weaver was a bat for the last time. When he had two strikes, I tipped his bat one more time and got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And so when he were so when he got fired by the Pirates in eighteen ninety six he moved on to the Milwaukee Brewers of the minor leagues. It was in the Western League. And there he's getting better as a manager. Right? This is where he just, you know, like from 1897 to 1900, he managed the Brewers. And his best year was their last year. They finished in second place. And this is also where he meets up with future Hall of Famer Rube Waddell. The crazy, crazy pitcher, Rube Waddell, who is a character, just absolute character. So I'm not familiar with that. Can you give us a little bit about him? So Rube Waddell is this dude from Pennsylvania. He was near Puxatawney. Anyway, he's a, he was just a character in that he would just do crazy stuff on, in, on the field. Like he would be distracted by... One story, he was distracted by the sound of a fire truck going by the uh, stadium, not in Milwaukee, but like, like you know, in the major leagues, and Waddell would just, you know, leave the ballpark to go chase the fire truck, and like, he would just do crazy things, so many crazy so things. So he was a little bit of a wackadoo. He was a wackadoo, for sure, but he had great pitching talent, and that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, this is where Matt first meets, first meets Rube Waddell. And he realizes that this guy is a great pitcher, but man, if only I could control him. <laughs> He's got the intangibles, but you just have to yeah, conquer the hardest six inches in sports to conquer, which is the ones between your earlobes. Yes. And the best story, I don't remember, I don't think it's in this book, I read it somewhere else, where Mac had to, Mac signed Waddell, but he had to go to Puxatawney, where, Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, where Waddell was living. And they had to go to like all the businesses in town, like bars, 
and like Mac had to pay these pay all these businesses off Rodell's debt. So like whether it be tabs or whatever, they would just go they just go business by business by business and just pay off the tabs. And then at the end, they're at the train station and some um, some uh, some businessman from Puxatani comes up to Mac and like. He sees all these people coming with his businessmen, and Max thinking, "Oh God, they're they're probably so mad that I'm taking Ruben away from them to go pitch in Milwaukee." And the businessman says, "Mr. Mac, we'd like to thank you for taking Ruben off our hands." <laughs> yeah, because they knew they're going to have to pay his bar tabs or his, I guess I don't know at that time general store tabs yeah. and all of that. So like, thank you for getting this nuisance out of our way, kind of deal. Yes. Now, and then another story from Milwaukee. And if, I'm gonna have to find this in the book, but Connie Mack is known, at least in his later in the major leagues, as not is, you know, not getting to arguments with umpires. He was like the opposite of John McGraw in that sense, or the opposite of Bobby Cox as a modern day. But there was one time in Milwaukee, and if I can find this, this was like the only time he got thrown out of a ball game. And I wish I I gotta find it. it it's like when I read this, I was kind of shocked, and it was in like oh, is it? hold on a second. I'll, I'll find it later. Hold on, let's see. I apologize, guys. <laughs> it's been a while since I read this book, but he got thrown out of the game. He come out in Milwaukee. Yeah. It was like the only time he got thrown out. Never ejected as a manager, and only once prior to that in 1895. Okay, so maybe it was... So it says, on September 6th, the Polo Grounds, the frustrated Mac argued to call up second base, and veteran umpire Hank O'Day tossed him out of the game. The only official ejection of the tall tactician... That's a strong nickname. Yeah. It's a long career. After being thrown out of the game, Mac refused to leave the field, and O'Day asked a New York City policeman to remove him. Mac shook him off and didn't leave until other officers arrived at the scene. He later said that he was embarrassed by the incident. Though extremely passionate and highly competitive, the pragmatic Mac managed to maintain his composure through the rest of his career because he thought it was the best for his team. Yeah. Is that the incident you were thinking of? That's what I was thinking of because it was in the book and I thought it was in Milwaukee, but no, this was when he was with the Pirates. It was with the Pirates in 1895, his only official objection on record. Yeah. The only time he got thrown out of the game. I could see him from the brief reading I did, and I know he's your guy. Yeah. From the brief reading I did, I can see him being that guy that knows the threshold you can get away with with an umpire mm-hmm. and pushing the envelope, but not knocking it off the table. Right. Yeah. And so, and also around this time, either, I think, I think for sure this was in Milwaukee. You know, Mac had a temper as, you know, being a, an Irishman, you got a temper. I mean, that's, you know. He had that temper. McGraw was Irishman. He had a temper, but Mac had a temper as well, even though it's not well publicized. And if they would lose it, if they lost a game, you know, if his team lost a game in the early days, Mac would go into the clubhouse and he would rant and rave and, you know, throw a hissy fit about whatever. And then eventually he realized, you know what, that's just not good for me or the team. So, at this time he was still wearing the uniform. Around this time in Milwaukee, excuse me. He stopped wearing the team's uniform and started wearing the suit that we all know Connie Mack do wearing in the ball game. He's wearing a suit and tie 
with a bowler hat, you know, or some sort of hat. Rather that that's when he just stopped because he knew that hey, if I just wear this, I don't have to go to the I don't have to go into the uh, clubhouse and you know rant and rave. I don't have to go on the field because I can't go on the field in business clothes. So he's like, all right, I, this is how I can control my temper, and I'm just going to do that, and it worked, you know. So that's where the image of the modern popular image of Connie Mack comes out into the, you know in the Milwaukee days. So, and Milwaukee was a good team. They never won the Western League pennant, but they were a good team, very competitive. And their last year, <clears throat> the last year in 1900, that was his best season. They won, they didn't win, sorry, they finished in second place until 1900. So the Western League became the American League because Ben Johnson was the president of the Western League where Milwaukee was in, and that was going to be the genesis of the American League. In 1900, the Western League changed its name to the American League. Okay, the, in 1900, the Milwaukee Brewers finished second place in the American League with a record of 79, 58, and 2. And the Chicago White Stockings, which would later become the Chicago White Sox, finished in first place with 82, 53, and 2 record. That's back when they played what, 120 something games? 100. 140. 140, you know. It wasn't like. they. I remember they added. That would be something we'll cover later, I'm sure. Yeah. It was like at least 140. You know. But like I said, the Mac was, you know, Mac got better. It was a learning experience. Milwaukee was a learning experience for him, and Mac just got better and honed his craft as a manager. And then, so 1901 rolls around, and the Philadelphia A's. The Philadelphia A's, right? Ben Johnson says, "All right, we're going to make the American League a major league." There was only the National League at the time. He said, "We're going to make it American. We're going to make it this American League. We're going to make it a, a major league, and we're going to expand and have teams and markets that." You know, either have have a national league team in that market, or just not. You know, they don't have a national league team. But we're gonna go to bigger cities, and we're gonna do this and that. This is what we're gonna do. So he tells Connie Mack because well, then Connie Mack was the loyalist to Ben Johnson. He tells Connie Mack, "All right, we're gonna have a team in Philadelphia, and you gotta find some money men to <clears throat> put the team together." Now. And he's, you know, Max looking around, he's not used to Philadelphia. He's from Massachusetts. You know, he's not a Philadelphia guy. And somebody gets him in contact with Ben Scheib. And Ben Scheib was part owner of the A.J. Reach company, which made sporting goods. And him and Reach owned this company, and he had some money from that. And Connie Mack goes to Scheib, and he says, hey, we're doing this new team. You know, we're getting, we're getting this new major league started up. We're getting this new team. Can you help me finance it? And initially, Shai kind of he and hawed and was like not interested because I think he tried to he him and Reach put some money into a, a, either a player league, a, another team in Philadelphia, like a players league team, and that backfired on him bad. And he was just kind of reluctant to put the money to help put this franchise going. But his two sons 
Tom and John Shive intervened and said, "Hey, you know, why don't you do this? This guy, you know, this kind of guy knows what he's doing, you know." And at the time, Shive's wife passed away fairly recently, so Shive's just kind of lonely. And you're like, "Hey, look, you know, it'd be good to go into this baseball business with Kind Mac. Maybe we could lift your spirits. We can make probably some money, you know." you probably enjoy it. And then so Shive was like, all right, let's do it. You know, I will go put the money, you know, Connie Mac put up some money and then uh, I think Johnson, Ben Johnson put some money in all the teams in the league. And a guy named Charles Summers put also put money in all the teams in the league to get everything off the ground. And so 1901 rolls around and they get a ballpark. It's called the Columbia Avenue Grounds, Columbia Park, sorry, Columbia Park. It was in the brewery town section of Philadelphia, which there was a lot of breweries there, that's what hence the name. Small Wooden Park, 1901, they're ready to go. And they get all these stars from the crosstown Philadelphia Phillies, such as Nat Lajoie, or I guess some people say Lot, like, it's, I know it's, it's pronounced Lajoie, but some people pronounce it LaJoy. But I just think it's lost away. L A J O I E. Yeah, yeah. You can go either way, but from what I understand, it's lost away. They get all these big stars. They get these stars from the uh, crosstown Phillies. And in 1901, they didn't win the pennant. It was the White Sox. Well, they're still the White Stockings then. But they came close. They. I'm going to look it up again. I apologize, guys. They finish. Um, I think it was like the second or third. It was in the it was in the top division of the eighteen American League. Let's see if we go back to back. And Lajoy, I think he won the tri I think he won the triple crown that year. I know he won the Bang Championship with a. Some say it was four twenty two. Other people say it was four twenty six. But he was a big star for the Philadelphia A's in nineteen oh one. Like, and they needed. You know, like the American League and and uh, the Phil the, the A's needed like some players to get this to drive up interest and get the American League going and getting Nap Lodge away from the Phillies was just a big deal. That that really paid off space for him. So that'd be like somebody trading today for a guy like Bryce Harper. Yeah. Or um, Trout. Yeah. And that's the thing, like but the thing is like they didn't really trade with the National League. American League openly raided the rosters in National League. Yeah, to get here's money. Players. Come on. Yeah, they did it all the time, and National League just hated it. They were furious, but they couldn't do anything about it. You know. Well, it's before free agency and all of that, which that'll be a good topic for, for us again to do one day later on. <clears throat> so you know they. So nineteen so in nineteen oh one they finish in fourth in the American League with a seventy four sixty two and one record. But it worked out for him. But 1902 rolls around, and unfortunately, the Phillies are trying to sue the A. Like they try to sue the American League A's for you know, or they're trying to sue Lodgeway for like breach of contract or something like that. And it got to the point where, like after the season, it, um, I'll go back to Lodgeway. But like you know, it got to the point where Connie Mack had to like trade Lodgeway. Uh, away from the A's to get you know keep him in the American League, but like you know not keep him back to the Phillies. So Mac had to lose Wat Lajoie and trade him to Cleveland, 
They weren't the Indians then. I think they were the, the Blues or the Broncos. But he's traded to Cleveland, and he's just like, man, I lost my best player. But it was okay, because in 1902, they won the American League pennant. So, you know, losing Washington wasn't that bad. <laughs> he's probably got ridiculed on the spot, but then when it's like, hey, look at me, I got the swing for this. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I'm trying to trade away the best player, but hey, you know. And also, you know, he has Eddie Plank, which later became his star, one of the star pitchers on the, the first dynasty of the of the A's in the 1910s. Eddie Plank was on the first A's team in 1901, and you know, he's he's slowly becoming the, the great pitcher that he's going to, that he's going to become. What year did Rube Waddell join? It was somewhere in the early 1900s. Like Waddell is just, you know, and then around that time, Waddell's coming in, you know, and um, eventually they get Chief Bender as a pitcher too. So now they're, you know, they're getting their main three pitchers for that decade. Fast forward to 1905, they win the American League pennant again. And this time, they get to play in the World Series against the New York Giants. And they lost four games to one. Christy Mathewson, the Giants' star pitcher, wins three games in the World Series. And the A's were defenseless. And it also didn't help that Rube Waddell injured his shoulder roughhousing with one of his teammates right before the series started, and he was out for the whole series. So if they had Waddell, they would probably go, I would say the series probably would have gone to seven games, and the A's may have won. They may have had a better chance to win. But without Waddell, they were hopeless. Could you imagine that happening now? That would be a... That'd be Those a, contractual obligations about riding motorcycles and things like that. I guarantee Rough House in the Clubhouse is covered also. Yeah. You know, it's just... But Waddell was just crazy. <laughs> and his catcher, the A's catcher at the time, Aussie Schreschengoss, or Ghost, it's, it's hard to pronounce. It's interesting to pronounce. He went to Connie Mack... And he told Connie, look, I will sign this contract, but you gotta put it in, you know, you gotta put it in, you gotta put this in Waddell's contract that if I have to room with him, he cannot eat animal crackers in bed. Because he did that a lot. And so Connie messed so People that just left crumbs all over the place and they were sharing a, sharing a bed together? Yeah, and just, he, Waddell was just, oh man, you, you, you you gotta look up Waddell. If you've never heard of Rube Waddell, go look him up. I'm sure there's a YouTube video that somebody did about him and they would tell more about his zaniness. The guy was just a one of a kind, fascinating character. And he was a very good pitcher, Hall of Fame quality pitcher. So I recommend Rube Waddell. So, you know, and from 1906, 1909, A's are still doing good. But by 1908, it's become clear that Columbia Park was, you know, it has outlived its usefulness. And so the A's were like, all right, we got to build a new ballpark. So this is when they're going to build Shot Park. Yes. Which you guys... To, yeah. Which you, Matthew knew what we were talking about today. He wore the appropriate television, or Pro t-shirt. Yeah. Appropriate t-shirt. I'm wearing a Shot Park t-shirt. But Established 1909. Established 1909. So they build Shot Park. And it opened on April 12, 1909, and it was the first steel and concrete ballpark in the major leagues. The first one. 
you know, and this thing, if you ever never seen a picture of Shot Park, you gotta look at a picture of Shot Park because it was so unique for its time and the little little tunda where Connie Mac's office Just was. judging off of the shirt Matthew's wearing right now, it looks very regal. Bunch of arches, it's got a dome right behind home plate, yeah. in front of the entrance. It's almost like a it should be a Congress building or something. But yeah. then on the inside of the baseball park. Yeah. And the best part about Shy Park in the early years, much to Connie Mack and Ben Scheib's uh, consternation, of course it's hard to tell because they have this newer fence, but the fence at Shy Park, the right field fence wasn't that tall. So neighboring houses that across the street from the park, people could like stand, you know, watch the games from their house on the rooftops of their houses and watch the game. Kind of like a Wrigley vibe. Yeah, these days. this was it was before Wrigley. they commercialized it. Yeah, it was like Wrigley before Wrigley in that sense. And just you know, I'm sorry. My favorite thing about Shy Park is the, you know crosstown rivals, the Phillies. It was literally five blocks west, corner to corner. Yeah, it was not that far from, from the Baker Bowl, which is where the Phillies played. Yeah, it was not that far from the Baker Bowl. Like, there's good, there's pictures of like seeing both Shive and the Baker Bowl that close. I just looked at a picture of the Baker Bowl, and it seems, uh, in comparison to Shy Park, it is not. It seems very just basic. Here's a ballpark, and then this place looks so regal. Glorious. Yeah, they, you know, the, the A's made a statement <laughs> with Shot Park. I mean, Baker Bowl, it was just dilapidated. And, uh, we can go into the Baker Bowl later, but it was just, it's nothing, it was nothing compared to Shot Park. And then Shot Park, over the course of its existence, uh, there was eight World Series, two All Star games in 43 and 52. And um, 1952 All Star game is the only one. To this day, I believe, to be shortened by rain. Yes. Um, and that that's that one thing it's got going for it. Yeah. I mean, it was just unique. And then later, we'll, we'll, we'll get to this in the next episode. It was renamed Connie Mack Stadium. Yep. In um, 1953. 50, okay. Yeah. And it was also the first American League Park with lights. That's right. So, lots of history. We're going to have to have a stadium episode in its own. With places like the Polo Grounds and Shad Park and Wrigley and Fenway um, and just there, yeah, we'll go from like yeah, just to talk about the classic ballparks. And so, 1909, A's finished like in second place. 1910s, where we get the ball rolling. This is the beginning of the Connie Mack's first dynasty with the Philadelphia Athletics. 1910, they win the American League pennant, and then they win the World Series against the Chicago Cubs you know and this is like this is like the end this was the end of the Cubs dynasty in the early 1900s and, 19, and this is the beginning of Connie Mack's dynasty the A's dynasty so it's the end of the dynasty and the beginning of a drought yeah you know so sorry Cubs fans you know <laughs> as a Cardinals fan you hate to see it <laughs> That's true. And so, you know, 1910, great year. A's win the World Series in the pennant. Jack Coombs, you know, they had all these star pitchers, but the real star was Jack Coombs in that World Series. He won three games, and he just dominated the Cubs. And the Cubs were out, were, did not have their services of their star second baseman, 
John Evers because he broke, he was injured and he couldn't play the World Series. So they just had Chance and Tinker and I don't know who played second base. Somebody did. Just hey Steve, at the end of the bench, man, can you play second? Cool. Yeah, gotcha. And the A's won 102 games that year. 102, and that's before they were playing full 162. They're playing. Uh, I think I just looked at it about 152. Yeah, somewhere around there. One 140 something. Yeah, they played. They played 155 games that year, according to Wikipedia. But it's like 152, 154. You know, somewhere around there. 1911, the A's once again win the American League pennant, this time with a 101-51 record, and then they beat the New York Giants in the World Series four games to two. Right, they got their revenge from 1905. And, even, and McGraw and the Giants, they wore black uniforms in 1911 World Series, just like they did in 1905, because, you know, baseball superstition, they think, well, this is going to bring us good luck. And working for we're going to do it again. Right, and, well, it didn't happen this time. They lost. And that was the series that third baseman for the A's, Frank Baker, hit two big home runs off, one off Chrissy Madison, the other off, I want to say it was Drew Marquardt. And that helped lead the A's to the World Series, and then he gave the nickname of Home Run Baker. But, you know... In a career, home run Baker only hit like 96 home runs. But he got that. You know, How do you get that nickname if you're not even going to hit 100, 100 bumps? Right. But he just got it because he was the star of the World Series that year. Okay, so now 1912 rolls around. The A's finished in third place with a 90 and 62 and 1 record. The Boston Red Sox won the World won the. American League pennant and the World Series that year, and that was the year the Fenway Park opened. Now, and now for years, Connie Mack has always said that the 1912 team was his best team. He always felt that 1912 was his best team, even though they didn't win a pennant. But the wheels just, they, they fell off, they just couldn't catch up with the Red Sox. And one of my favorite stories um, evolving near the end of the season where the A's were just well out of the contention you know, they were so after a series in Washington in September, you know, they're headed to New York to play the well, they're still called the Highlanders then, but they became the Yankees. And star uh, pitcher Chief Bender and outfielder Rube Oldring. They got. They were heading to, uh, like I said, they're heading to New York. They get off the train in Wilmington, Delaware, and they pick up Chief Bender's car, which I guess was there. And then they went joyriding for the rest of the way. They were just partying. They were just, you know, had a great time. And I guess, I guess Connie Mack. Either I guess they told Connie Mack that they were going to be late or something. Either way, they left the team and they went joyriding all night. And they went to Aldrin's home in New York. To I guess you know party up there, and then they arrive in New York City at three in the morning at their hotel, and Connie Mack was not thrilled, and he told both Bender and Oldring to go home for the rest of the year. I don't have a coach that I ever played for that would have been thrilled with that. Yeah, I guess 1912 was a little lax, but even then, I don't know. I must have been on a heck of a bender to get that treatment. Like, hey, as good as you are. Have a nice rest of your season. Yeah, you know. But even though, 
even though they told he told him to go home for the rest of the year, they both returned for like the last weekend of the season. I guess to sit on the bench. But by then, you know, the pennant race was over. But they shouldn't have done that. But I just when I read this in the first volume of the the free volume biography, I just laughed. I thought that was hilarious. I was like, man, baseball was different back then. <laughs> oh, we're in the dugout smoking cigars and eating hot dogs, you know, Babe Ruth style. Yeah. Like, like Jim Leland also smoked cigarettes in the in the dugout, you know, during spring training anyway. But, but you know, that was just a funny story out of this book. And then 1913, A's are back. They are back. They win the pennant again. And then they win the World Series. They beat the Giants this time in five games. Last game, they went in Shy Park. Eddie Plank's on the mound. You know, he went nine innings. And there's a great, if you can find it, you know, there's a great picture of him, you know, throwing that last pitch in the World Series at Shy Park. And he's just, you know, he, he knew he knew he got the guy. So Eddie Plank? Eddie Plank, yeah. Hall of Famer. He won 300 games. Not all of the A's, though, but... Anyway, I bet I Google him in images. That's what pops up right now. Yeah, and that year, 1913, the A's they won it with a record of 96 and 57. So not 100 games, but still 90 games. They won in first place. You know, and then 1914 rolls around, and this is the this is truly the end of the first dynasty. And yes, they won the pennant that year with a 99-53-6 record. You think everything was all fine and dandy with the A's that year, but everything was not. And partially it's Connie Mack's fault because he made backup catcher Ira Thomas the captain of the team, which didn't make a lot of people on the team happy because they didn't feel like Ira was a popular player. They didn't really respect Ira. And so that caused dissension among the team in that sense. And then, even though they won, they, well, they won the pennant, and now they're facing the Boston Braves in the World Series. And that was the year that they were, that was the year of the Miracle Braves, where the Braves were last place like in July 4th, and they came back in a hot streak and they won the pennant. And they were called Miracle Braves. And, you know, Mac said, you know, the, the Braves were playing in New York near the end of the season. And he told, he said, Chief, you know, you need to go down there and scout the pitching. You know, Chief, he told Chief Bender, Chief, you got to, well, he didn't call him Chief, he called him his real name, Albert. Albert, you go down there and go, go uh, <clears throat> scout the pitching and, you know, do a scouting report and come back. And Chief, you know, a few days go by, he talks and he sees uh, Bender again. And he's like, hey, Albert, you know, did you what you see? He's like, oh, I didn't even go down there. And kind of like, why do you mean? What do you mean didn't go down? There? He's like, oh, they, oh, these guys are, you know, they're what? Oh, I said something. Oh, these guys are, you know, these guys are easy. We can beat them. You know, I'm not worried about the Braves. And then the Braves manager George Stallings, he's like, hey, you know. It's near the season, like, hey, you know, can we use Shy Park to practice before the season? Like, no, sorry, before the World Series. And Connie Mack's like, why? You know, you guys can go practice in the Baker Bowl. And George Shaw's through a hissy fit about it. He's like, all right, fine, you, you go practice in the Baker Bowl. 
and then some more and then like you know more craziness happens like you know was it almost that they were asking to use that stadium for practice because we'd rather practice somewhere nice that you have I was, or was it just we don't like the Phillies basically it's just you know same thing it's like it's just a nicer a nicer uh, you know just a nicer place and you know it's obviously they're going to play the World Series there not the Baker Bowl but I guess so you'd rather play on the field you're going to play on and whatnot yeah. also and, and Connie Mack was just like why you know he just didn't understand it because I guess the Cubs and the Giants if they wanted to practice in Philadelphia before the World Series they did it at the Baker Bowl because it's a national park but it made more sense to do it in Shy Park because that's where the World Series would be played but you know oh okay so here's the here's the quote that Bender supposedly said when Connie Mack said you know, why didn't you go down there and uh, scout them out? Bender said, I didn't bother. What's the use of looking at that bunch of Bush leaders? And boy, that came back to bite him. Game one of the World Series, Shy Park, Bender is the pitcher. And fortunately, Bender came over. He, apparently he was ill. He came to the park and apparently he was ill. He claimed that it was vertigo and trouble with my gallbladder stomach. Shaq Thompson, who was a reserve outfielder for the A's that year, he said that Bender's illness was a hangover. Because Bender, you know, like I said, Bender... Bender likes to go on some Benders? Yeah, exactly. You know, and supposedly Shaq Thompson heard that Bender and who else, Rube Oldring, was out the night before drinking. Because I guess they're drinking buddies. You know. And he told, he told Connie Mack, look, I don't feel well, but I can beat these guys. You know. But that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't the case. Bender lasted like six innings against the Braves. He got knocked down in the sixth inning when his Braves scored three runs. He comes back to the bench. Connie Mack looks at him and goes, Well, Albert, pretty good bunch of misfits. You can go take a shower. <laughs> He's like, You're done. And that was the last time that Bender pitched in the A's uniform. And then the, the Braves continued and they swept the A's in four games. And the Braves played their home games at, at Fenway Park that series. Because this is before Braves Field was built and they just left their old wooden ballpark, the South End Grounds, to play at Fenway for the, the, the remainder of that season and then the World Series. Because one, it's a newer stadium, and two, Fenway held more than South End Grounds. So. So at one point, the Boston had the Braves and the Red Sox. Yes. Yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah, from 1901 to 52, they had Braves and the Red Sox. I don't know how I just didn't know that. That's some 50 years of time. I just... Yeah. And for a brief time, they shared Fenway Park. And, you know, the Braves repaid the Red Sox in 15 and 16. Sorry, I got a little subject. They... they um, they repaid them in 1516 when Brace Field opened in 1915. They let the Red Sox play their World Series games at Brace Field in 1516 because it's a brand new stadium and Brace Field held more than Fenway Park. So you need a little bit of revenue on right. that side of it. So you get some more money out of it and it's just a repayment of them being nice to land that we use Fenway Park for their World Series in 1914. I think it's starting to become a recurring theme of 
revenue drives baseball, even back in the 18, early 1900s. Yeah. Which, can't say it's not true to the day, so. Yeah. So this was the end of the first dynasty of the A's. Connie Mack, now you have to also understand that in 1914, there was a third major league that popped up, the Federal League. And they're rating players, just like the American League did in 1901, they're rating both American and National League. And so the end of the season, Eddie Plank and Chief Bender go to the Federal League. And with the Federal League, that was where Eddie Plank won his 300th game as a member of the St. Louis Terriers in the Federal League. And so they go to the Federal League. And some other, I think some other players went too, but those were two big guys. You know, home run Baker sits out the whole 1915 season because he wants more money and Matt's not willing to do it. Because the attendance was down 1914 even though they won the pennant. So Mac did not have the money. Neither Mac nor Scheib had the money to pay Bender. So Bender sat out the whole year of 1915. And then 1916, Mac traded him to the Yankees where he finished his career in the 20s. So what was to keep Chief Bender from going somewhere else? What was to keep Chief Bender? From going somewhere else. Like, you don't have the money to pay me. That was before free agency and like contracts the way they are now. Like, what was to keep him from going and playing for, say, the Boston Braves or the New York Giants or the, anything like that? The reserve clause, you know, because that the reserve clause was basically said you you're bound unless unless they unless the team releases you or trades you you're bound to that team. You know, Even if I can't pay you and you can't play. Right. You know, you're bound to that team. You, you can't, you're property of that team, even though they can't pay you or play you. So, you know, that's why Bender and Plank went to the Federal League, because they're like, oh, we don't have a reserve clause, and we can pay you all this money, and we can pay you more than what you're getting from the A's. You know. It just doesn't make sense that somebody would be locked in like that, if, even if I can't get paid to play the game. You know? Yeah, it's just, it's... All kinds of screwed up. Yeah, the reserve clause, like I said, reserve clause of free agency. That's something we can get into in a later episode because there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about, a lot that I, I honestly need to research more with the reserve clause. But from my understanding, it's like you're, you know, the reserve clause. You're bound to that team unless they decide to release you or trade you, no matter how long, you know. So anyway, yeah. So they go to the federal league. Bender goes to the Baltimore Terrapins, and he has a terrible year. Like he was, this was near the end of his career, and he's just like, he was just terrible with the Terrapins. The Terrapins weren't a good team anyway, so they're gone. Baker sits out for the year. Eddie Collins, their star second baseman, which I forgot to talk about in this dynasty because he played a big part. He gets traded to the Chicago White Sox, and he helps the White Sox, you know, win the 1917 World Series. And unfortunately, you know, he had to play the 1919 World Series, but he was not part of the Black Sox. He wasn't part of the eight Black Sox, so he was good at that. And he has 3,000 hits, and he's in the Hall of Fame. Oh, let's see. And then Jack Coombs, he went to the Brooklyn, they weren't called the Dodgers at that time, they were called the Brooklyn Robins, after their manager, Wilbur Robinson, who we just talked about. And in 1916, Jack Coombs, in the World Series, he won the Dodgers only, I mean, the Robins only game in that series, which was game three. And he was the first pitcher 
to win a World Series game for an American League team and a National League team. Which, that's a nice little fun fact. Uh, we can go on, the, and it'll, you know, in the, in the future I can talk about the similarities between 1960 and the, 19, the 2018 World Series. Those are just great. Lots of similarities there, but that was just a nice little fun fact. And then, so he's got, you know, Max, Max still has some, some good players on his team, like Rube Aldrich still there in 1915, Amos Strunk, a young Herb Pinnock who will be in the Hall of Fame, but mostly with his Yankees career. He had some good players, but they finished in last place. Like, all the stars are gone, and it's rock bottom. But then in 1916, it's even worse. 1915, they went 43, 109, and 2. 1916, they went 36, 117, and 1. They were a terrible, it's terrible as bad team. as it gets. That is Miami Marlins, if they were the Miami Marlins, of being the Miami Marlins. Yes, right. They, they were just that bad. Now, one thing I forgot to mention, the A's had a mascot in their dynasty. And he was a, his name was Louis Van Zelst. And he was a hunchback. He was a little kid with a hunchback. He got injured and you know the, the bones didn't set right and he had a hunchback. You can look him up, he, there's pictures on him. And what was his name one more time? Louis Van Zelst. Z-E-L-S-T. He is, you know, and he, you know, Connie Mack and the players thought he brought good luck to the team. So they kept him around, and obviously they won, and, you know, it was, it also helped, you know, boost the fans' self-confidence because, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you didn't see a lot of disabled children running around or talked about watch, and, but to see him with the team and being accepted as the, you know, the mascot of the team, and, you know, people, you know, it, just, it was just good for his, it was a boost of confidence for Zenzel's. But, you know, after 1914, Zenzel's died, and, you know, the A's went to last place. 1916, they're still in last place. They're not good at all. And in 1916, they get a new uh, hunchback mascot. And his name is Huey McLoon. So they just traded out one for another. Like, yeah. this guy died. We like his hunchback emoji. Yeah. So we're going to hire a new one. Yes, which, what are the odds of finding another hunchback kid in Philadelphia? You know, at that time, or anywhere. It's just slim to none. But they found this guy, Van Zels, in July 1916... He hits the courage to go up to Connie Mack's office up in that tower in the in the front of the stadium. And he says, he asks Connie, he's like, hey, can I have a job? You know, can can I be the new mascot? And Connie's just like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know. So that kid knew what he was doing. He's like, hey, they got a void for a hunchback and I'm a hunchback. Exa yeah. We squeeze in here. Yes. I gotta find the story. Now, it's in my it's in the second volume of the Connie Mac books. And I I wish I could remember the page, but I can find it. Huey McLoon. What a guy. Here we go. Seventy four. So on page seventy four it talks about Huey McLoon. 
and he was the, even though they were both hunchbacks, he was the complete opposite of Louis Van Zels. Van Zels, according to you know, I mean, Van Zels was a popular and just a great guy, great kid. Van Zels was, according to the book, he was sassy, hard-boiled kid who had been mascotting for various athletic teams and prize fighters throughout Philadelphia. So he had experience of being a mascot. And he heckled at umpires and opposing players. And it got to the point that he dropped that a, a uh, umpire published a poem basically as a rebuke, like, you know, trying to, like, get back at Huey. He posted a, uh, a uh, poem just basically bashing Huey McLoon. And it, it goes like this. Hey, Huey McLoon, you better wa- now you better watch out. I'm three times as bad as a guy with gout. It didn't take silk, meaning umpire Silva Laughlin, didn't take silk and me long to get wise that you were no friend of us umpiring guys. The first thing you know, one of these summer days, there will be a new mascot at work for the A's. And, you know, uh, he didn't, McLoon didn't have the, the luck. He, he couldn't make the A's win. And he was gone by like 1918 after like three, uh, three more losing seasons. And he later, like, he later did more prize fighting mascots with like Jack Dempsey and some other people. And then he became an informant with the Philadelphia Police Department. You know, just for like during prohibition for bootlegging, while on the side was also running a, a speakeasy bar in Philadelphia during bootleg. Makes sense. I'm going to tell on yeah. everybody else. And yeah. Keep the tell off me. Yeah, and eventually in 1928 he got gunned down by somebody. Like, nobody really knows who gunned him down. He got gunned down in Philadelphia. And this year somebody wrote a, a biography about Huey McLoon. So there is a book, and I'm going to be brief about this, but. It's like, it was called, I'm trying to remember, Huey McLoon. It's a, I mean, I want to read this book so bad, it's just that interesting. Here we go, The Short Life of Huey McLoon, An Impossible Story About Bandits, Bootleggers, and Baseball by Alan Abel. And it was published in March of this year, so I would, if you're if you're interested in learning more about Huey McLoon, you should check out that book. I want to check it out myself. I'm sure it's going to have bits in there of what we're talking about right now. Yeah, sprinkle through. So, so I would recommend that. So, now the A's continue to be in last place from 1950. So from 1915 to 1921, they finished in last seven times in a row, and they were just bad. They were so bad. And everybody's just like, man, these A's, what are they doing? And then 1922 happens, they get to seventh place. They finish in seventh. The streak of all these losing, all these last place finishes is over. They still have a 454 winning percentage that year, so they're not even 500. They're not. They're not last. They're not last. It's all that matters, you know? So, 1923, they get to sixth place. Now I got a little story from 1923 from the second volume of the book that just really stands out to me as a instance of breaking the myth of breaking one of the myths of Connie Mack. And if I can find it, 
I apologize again. So I, let's get to like uh, 1925, 1926, and probably be good to wrap up and then do the rest on the next one. I think that'd be good. Yeah, that'd be good. So 23. Find it. So, 19, so Connie Mack has been well known, at least in baseball myths, that he didn't, you know, scold players when they did when they made a bad play. You know, he would like calmly, you know, fatherly, you know, talk, you know, talk to them, and be like, hey, yeah, this is what you should do. You know, hey, this is what you should do better, and all this stuff. Do you think that's because part of that was he was a player? And he knew what it was like to be talked to like that and didn't want to treat his employees the same way or his players the same way? I would say so. And just, you know, kind of, you know, just be different from other managers. Be like, hey, you know, this is what you should do differently. Like, here's the crap that pissed me off when I was playing. I'm not going to do my best not to do that to you, you know? Yeah, something like that. So he was just very different than most managers in that way. But, man... This one instance in 1923 kind of just breaks that myth. That's something that when I read that in, in the second volume of the book, I couldn't believe it. In, 19, in August 2nd, 1923, he cusses out one of his players, Wid Matthews, who was an outfielder. And Wid Matthews was just... He was just uh, most of the, you know, most of the. Uh, he was a great. He was a good base runner, but a lot of times he was very careless on the bases, and just you know, he was also truculent, hot-tempered, and a clubhouse lawyer who irritated his teammates and occasionally ignored Connie Mack's directions. And it all came to a head on August second in a game at home against the Detroit that ended in the A's 11th straight loss. They lost 6-5. to five. Close game. Wood Matthews pulled a base running boner. And what do you mean by boner? It means a mistake. Right? That's what we're talking 100%. about. 100%. Yes. Get your head out of the gutter, people. Right. We're not going there. He makes a, a foolish bonehead base running play that could have caught, that costed him the game, basically. And Connie Mack had enough. Like, he, he put up with it for so long, and something happened that day that he's like, you know what? I'm tired of this guy. I'm going to tell him how I feel. I'm not going to be fatherly. I'm telling him exactly how I felt. So, when Matthews came back to the bench, and Mack tore into him in a tirade described by Philadelphia sports writer James Eisenberger as a remarkable, as remarkable for choice of words as well as length. <laughs> Which you can only imagine him just like cussing him out. Now, uh, uh, Norm Mock goes on to say, Those who have been around Mr. Mack long enough knew that when he was really sore, the dams and the hells would fly. So he was just throwing it out there. And like when I first read that back in, you know, I don't know, 2014, 2015, I put the book down and I started laughing for a good two minutes to the image of Connie Mack cussing out a player. Because, again, this shatters the myth, the popular myth, that he was always like that. He never chewed out his players. And whenever, we, whenever a baseball myth has been shattered, it, it, it makes me laugh. I'm weird like that. So well, There's a lot of things that people think that were commonalities that aren't, and how certain people were 
but they weren't just because the folklore becomes so big sometimes. Yes. And then the guy we're talking about right now, um, Wade Matthews, he only played three years in the league. Yeah. And then he wound up he wound up being a scout and a general manager. Yeah. So he had um, a he had so, a career after his playing career. But his three year career makes me wonder if the reasons that Connie Mack was getting into his ass are the reasons why his career didn't last more than three years. I would say so. He probably didn't change. In nineteen twenty three what's his he was a rookie. That was his first year. Yeah, with the Philadelphia A's, and he played uh, 24 and 25 with the Washington Senators. He batted 284, one home run, 39 RBIs, which batting average is pretty decent. That'll still hold up test of time today. But yeah, but just you know. But if you're only gonna play for three years and put up decent numbers like that, that tells me something's wrong with you. Right, and like like Norman Mock said in the book, guy was hot tempered. You know, he was a clubhouse lawyer. He was not popular with his teammates. And he, you know, if you're great and you're you're kind of a jerk, you can get away with that for so long. But if you're a jerk and you're not great of a player, you know, you're gone. You're not going to be there for a while. So here's the best part out of all this. After he cusses him out, Whit Matthews talked back to Connie Mack. You don't do that. And so for the next four weeks... Whit Matthews sat on the bench because of that. <laughs> I've got a great idea. Let's talk trash to the guy that puts pencils me into the lineup. Yeah, that's just... That's about like working at any one of our jobs today and talking trash to your boss. Let's talk trash to the guy that makes the schedule. Yes, this is great. It's your hourly or the guy that can fire me if I'm salary. You know, like, that's, that's just brilliant. Yeah. So, 24... You know, this is this is where Connie Mack is starting to build the new dynasty that we're going to get to in the next episode. Because this is going to be a two-parter. We're, we're going to tell you right now, this is a two-parter. He starts the dynasty. 1924, he gets Al Simmons. His first big star of the new, the, of the new dynasty. He gets him from Milwaukee. Al Simmons was born and raised in Milwaukee, and I think he played for the minor league Milwaukee Brewers in the 20s. He gets Al Simmons, and a cool story about Al Simmons is, in 1921, he wrote Connie Mack a letter asking if, you know, hey, you know, would you be interested in getting me? And Simmons was like, I don't know, 19, 18, 19, 20 at the time, and, and Connie Mack's like, eh, I'm not really interested right now, you know, wait, you know, for a while. But in those three years, between 21 and 24, Al Simmons became a great player for the Milwaukee Brewers. And Connie Mack took notice. And he remembered that kid from 1921 writing him that letter. And he's like, you know what? Let's get this guy. I want him on my team. He, he's ready. And that was the start of a great career for Al Simmons that led to the Hall of Fame. And then 25, they get Mickey Cochran, a catcher from the minor league, Portland Beavers, the Pacific Coast League. You know, they get Jimmy Fox. First, well, he was a key, he was also a catcher too, but then it became realized that Cochran was a better catcher, so he, he switched to first base later on. And home run Baker found Jimmy Fox. You know, they were they were both from Maryland, and you know, uh, Baker was managing the minor league team in Maryland that Fox was on. And he told Connie Mack, hey, I've got this young guy 
he was only like 17, 18 at the time. I think he's going to be great. You should get him. And Connie Mack said, sure, let's do it. You know, I got him. And then they get Lefty Grove that year from the Baltimore Orioles. And we're talking about the minor league Baltimore Orioles. They played in the International League. Mm-hmm. He was a great pitcher for the minor, the minor league Baltimore Orioles when they were owned by a guy named Jack Dunn, who also owned the Orioles when Babe Ruth was on the team in 1914. And him and Connie Mack had a great working relationship. If if Jack Dunn saw a player that he thought would be good, that would be get up to the big leagues, he always contacted Connie Mack first. Said, hey, I got this guy with Lefty Grove. Now, I think, you know, Lefty Grove won 300 games in his career. I think, he, like, exactly 300 games. He could have won a lot more in the major leagues if Jack Dunn let him go early because he played with the Baltimore Orioles for, like, six seasons, <laughs> you know, before he got to the A's. Like, from 1919 to 24, 25. You know, he could have won. He could have, like, I don't think he would have won 400 games if Mac, if uh, Jack Dunn let him go to the major leagues earlier. And these four players become the genesis of the the next dynasty. So you think he's just kind of holding him back to save him for later to keep his revenue up? Which revenue is going to be a consistent thing, I feel like, in this time period of baseball. Like, why wouldn't he allow him to come to the league sooner? I think that'd be just, I guess, revenue. I'm going to keep this pony in the stable until I really need this pony. Yeah, and the Baltimore Orioles of those days, they were just a, they were a dynasty in the International League. Like, you know, I think they won a good number of a good number of uh, straight pennants, a good number of International League pennants, like in a row. I, I'm gonna look it up right now. 1920s Baltimore Orioles. I mean, they were just one of the best teams in, in minor league baseball, like then that era, you know. People think the Orioles now, as a major league team, is not very good, at least this year. We can all agree with that. But they just, you know, they won seven consecutive pennants in the International League from 1919 to 1925. What was their competition like in that league? You had teams like uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Rochester Red Wings, Syracuse Stars, you so know, a bunch of guys that are actual AAA teams now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just and they had some other players like Jack Bentley who went to the Giants. But was it stiff competition or were they just loaded? I guess that's what I was asking. I think they were loaded. The competition usually pretty good. Like Rochester eventually became the top farm team for the St. Louis Cardinals in the late twenties. The Red Wings? Yeah, the Rochester Red Wings, yeah. Which they're, still, still, they're still team. Yeah, but I think they had loaded with talent because a lot of these guys went to the major leagues, like Grove, and they also had Max Bishop who would, and Joe Boley who would become infielders for the dynasty of the, of the 20s for the A's. And they had Fritz Mazel, and he played with the Yankees, and they had all these other guys. But they were loaded, and they just dominated. And you had Lefty Grove as a pitcher who, you know, like I said, he could have, I think he would have won 400 games if he was allowed to play earlier in the major leagues. But he just, you know, with that type of talent from 1919 to 1925, they just, 
they just bulldoze everybody in the International League. Well, in summation of what we covered on the first half of this episode, do you have anything you'd like to add to it about Mr. Connie Mack? You know, Connie Mack was a great guy. <laughs> you know, and and we've only told half the story. And we we've only, got the other half to go. Yeah, so. we only told half his story. There's a lot. Like the man lived to be ninety-three. Oh, what kind of impeccable at his age of living to make it that far? Yeah, and you know he had the ownership like the Shibes. You know, even though through those rough years from fifteen to twenty-one, the Shibes never fought about getting rid of him. They trusted Connie Mack in making the baseball decisions, and they hardly ever went against whatever he wanted to do on the baseball field. So he had great ownership backing him up. He was also part owner too. But but we wouldn't be talking about him right now if they had been wrong in trusting him. Exactly. No, but we wouldn't devote two parts in our podcast to one guy. You know. So just remarkable man who you know built teams and then. You know, went through some rough years, but he never gave up hope that he was going to win another pennant. And he found ways to get... To he's doing it, it seems like he was doing it for the love of the game, but with business in mind also. Yes. But I'm here to win. Yeah. And that's what we're here for. That's what we're here for, yeah. So, um, that's all I can add, to add, you know. Just. Well, I appreciate all of y'all. Well, not just me. We appreciate all of y'all listening in. To, uh, this will be episode three. Um, talking about Connie Mack. Um, a little housekeeping to take care of with everybody. We're on a bunch more platforms now, so you can tell your friends about it. We're on. Woo! We're on Spotify, which is where you're listening. Mm-hmm. We are on Google Podcasts now. Google. We're on Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm. We are on Breaker, yeah. Pocket Casts. Radio Public, and by the time this episode goes live, we should be on Apple Podcasts. All right, so that's potentially seven. That's seven platforms. Seven platforms you can check us out if you you know if you have. Um, I'm trying to do my best to get y'all get it onto free platforms. Yeah. Um, y'all don't yell at me if there might be an ad that pops up inconveniently in the middle of this episode because they gave me that option and they just take it where they want. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate y'all's support. Remember, we have a web uh, email address, baseballhis101 at gmail.com for the topic you'd like we talk about. Also, on our Anchor, you could leave us a voicemail of something you want us to talk about on anchor.fm. Yep. But, um, as always, I appreciate y'all listening. I'm sure Matthew does as well. Absolutely. Love. And we will so be back soon with another episode. 